Welcome to Coffee with the College, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Healthcare Executives, Wisconsin chapter. Our goal is for listeners to find this podcast as relaxing as coffee with friends and just as comfortable as our guests and observers banter about questions that are on all of our minds. If you've listened to these podcasts before, you're familiar with the format. I'm your host, Janet Schultz. I'm Chief Information Officer at a human services company called MyPath. Our observers today are Madeline Hansen, who is an operations manager in the Mayo Clinic Health System, Department of Family Medicine, and Rachel Sabelka, Manager, Strategic Initiatives for Advocate Health Midwest. Today, you're listening to the first of two podcasts we're thrilled to be recording with Ian Morrison. Ian is an internationally known author, consultant, and futurist who specializes in long-term forecasting and planning with a particular emphasis on healthcare and the changing business environment. Ian has written, lectured, and consulted on a wide variety of forecasting, strategy, and healthcare topics for government, industry, and an array of nonprofit organizations in North America, Europe, the Middle East, and Asia. Welcome, Ian. Well, thank you for having me, Janet. It's great to be with you. Want to chime in, everyone? So Madeline and Rachel, we get used to your voices as well. And this is Madeline. We're very excited to have you with us today. Thank you. Thanks for joining us, Ian. Really excited for this conversation. Ian, I had the pleasure of meeting with you before this podcast, and we talked about what may be of greatest interest to our listeners. We landed on a focus for this podcast on the top 10 industry trends you're seeing in 2023, and a follow-up podcast which will feature a deep dive into workforce trends and issues. So please, Ian, get us started. What are you observing in today's business landscape? Well, Janet, thank you. And I think it's, you know, it's a challenging time for the healthcare industry. You know, I've been doing this uh, about 40 years, you know, I'm known as a futurist and uh, my definition of a futurist is an economist who couldn't handle the calculus. You know, I'm in the sweeping generalization business and and have been for a very long time. So I work with a lot of leaders uh, uh, across the country and and try and understand, you know, how the environment is shifting and changing and what they are re- responding to. So from that perspective, I, I kind of compiled my list of top 10 trends. And, you know, there there are others that could have been included, but maybe just quickly review them and then we can engage in a dialogue. I mean, obviously the first has to do with where we are with the pandemic. And I, you know, I would say we're moving from the pandemic to endemic stage, uh, but there's no end in endemic. I mean, the, there's 20,000 cases roughly a day and about 250 deaths. So it's not over in in the sense of having a clinical impact, but it's certainly diminished in terms of the pressure from COVID per se on the health system. But, uh, and this is really the second one and we'll drill into in the subsequent podcast, is the whole uh, implication of all of that for the workforce. And it's multifaceted that to some degree, we've seen this great retirement or great realignment, which I'll talk about later, maybe. Um, but but the the punchline on workforce is 
that it's become way more expensive. And so labor costs are up anywhere from 10 to 20% over pre-pandemic levels. Um, and that is sinking the finances of most health systems. And there's no CARES Act to bail them out, right, at, at this stage. Um, the third trend, and it's sort of related, I kind of continually obsess about the financial hydraulics in American healthcare. And basically, we have a game where most health systems charge, you know, two or three times what it actually costs to deliver care to private insurers and particularly self-insured employers uh, to make up for the perceived underfunding for Medicare and Medicaid. Um, and that game may be under pressure because employers are increasingly getting activated and reappraising their uh, kind of engagement with the health system. And so we could talk more about that. And conversely, uh, it seems inevitable to me that we see growth in public programs, not in terms of revenue uh, or, or generosity, but in terms of just sheer numbers of people covered by both Medicare and Medicaid. I mean, Medicaid enrollment went up 25% roughly for adults during the pandemic. Now, there'll be a slight rollback because of the public health emergency expiring, but it, nevertheless, you know, Medicare grows because we get it's an older population. And within that, we're seeing the, the rise of, of uh, Medicare advantage as a share of all Medicare. So it's now a majority. And we could talk about the implications of that. And both public programs are managed by private parties, right? It's, it's not like the government is writing you a check. It's they're writing a check to Aetna or United, uh, and they're writing you a check. And that's a very... Uh, important shift in, in how we pay for healthcare. And then in the environment surrounding healthcare, we saw this bolus of financing coming from both private equity and venture capital in the last five years that actually accelerated during the depths of the pandemic. And a lot of that was associated with the next trend, which is the mega shift to the ambulatory environment. Uh, even large health systems, I live two good three woods from uh, Stanford Medical Center and had recent uh, surgeries there. Um, but but I would say that even a, an academic medical center like Stanford, the majority of the revenues now come from the outpatient environment, not the inpatient environment. And that's pretty typical across the country. And that's one of the targets for investment by these new disruptors, which brings us to to the next trend, which is the rise of digital health and disruptive competitors. And I put them together because I think most of the disruptive competitors, whether they be big tech or big retail like uh, Walgreens or Walmart, or whether they be startups, uh, are enabling uh, you know, transformation and disruption by the use of digital front doors and digital technology platforms. And then there's there's sort of three broad policy uh, issues that I think are among those top 10 trends. One is the need to integrate mental health. Uh, we've talked about this for decades, but we are still uh, siloed and have not inadequate integration of mental health. The second is delivering on health equity and do something about disparities. And I say do something because we're very good at talking about this at conferences and saluting the problem. We, we never actually do something. Uh, and, and it's that doing part that I think requires 
attention by health systems. And, and they need to be held to account that they're actually doing something to address the evident disparities, unfortunately, not just on income lines, but on racial lines a- across the country. And finally, I, I would say a mega trend is we have seen uh, you know, consolidation in the industry, uh, both amongst physicians and amongst hospitals. Uh, but yet it's under increasing scrutiny by policymakers uh, and by people who pay the bill who fear uh, with some legitimacy that the, the uh, you know, the concentration, particularly of power of hospital systems in regional markets leads to much higher prices. And that's actually most of the evidence points in that direction. But I, a lot of colleagues and I believe that that's only one way to judge how you think about consolidation and scale, um, and and you know, I think that's an issue we could we could talk about uh, uh, in more detail. But it certainly is under scrutiny, as I say, by both regulators and purchasers, and will continue to be so, I think, for the foreseeable future. So let me pause there and uh, invite you know comments, questions, violent disagreement which is my usual measure of performance. (laughs) Ian, that was a great flyover of the top 10 trends you're seeing. And I know Madeline and Rachel and I do have some questions and I thought of at least two more just as you were talking. So hopefully we'll have some time to to get to them. But um, I just wanted to take us back to your very first uh, point at a macro level. And that related to your statement of there's no end in endemic, right, in terms of COVID. And so at a macro level, how do you predict COVID will continue to disrupt healthcare? Well, I'm certainly no virologist or scientist in that regard. So uh, in terms of the biology of it all, I'm certainly not qualified. But um, I think what this has taught us that is that viruses will mutate and adapt and we will see potentially other threats like this again. Um, you know, people have been saying that, I think, for a very long time. Bill Gates, you know, was very prophetic, I think, in in identifying this 10 or 15 years ago in talks he gave at, at sort of a very macro level. Uh, I trust the scientists are correct in that. And, and there are terrifying variants of it, like uh, you know, uh, bio, uh, antibiotic resistant bugs and so forth. Um, but but uh, without going down that dark road, just the sheer COVID adaptation itself, I think it's left a huge scar on the American public um, and the global public, quite frankly. I think a lot of uh, individuals and families have reappraised priorities. Um, I think the disruption that it presented to health systems, as we've seen in the workforce uh, issues are not going away. And I think those challenges of bringing people back uh, to work in clinical functions in the face of continued infection. You know, I'm I'm sort of a few months post-op of uh, bypass surgery. I'm going to cardiac rehab uh, at a local hospital uh, three times a week. And so I'm I'm wandering the halls and it it you know it's it, it, it's often hard for people who don't work in healthcare to realize that there's people working 12-hour shifts in masks still with looking after patients, some of whom are infected. That takes a toll, and that toll is not going away, even though uh, mask requirements are being lifted uh, in, even in hospitals in, in certain states. So I, long-winded way of saying, I think 
the tail of the impact of COVID is longer than the cases uh, that are actively in your hospital. Um, and, and I think it's had an effect on society and an effect on the workforce in healthcare in particular that is probably fairly longstanding. And I think we've got to adapt and, and respond to that more creatively. I do have to say early in the pandemic, we did a series of three podcasts about resiliency and things like that. And I don't think any of us thought that three years in, we'd still be talking about it. And so I feel, and we talked then about how it's a marathon and now I'm beginning to feel like it's an ultra marathon based on what you just said. Yeah, no, that that's well put, Janet. And and you know, I mean, the metaphor. My my wife's a former emergency room nurse, and and she, you know, was in her youth a, an adrenaline junkie. You know, I mean, she loved, uh, you know, getting in there and being overwhelmed and dealing with, uh, you know, a busy emergency room. But and you can keep doing it a few times. But I think the metaphor of military combat is appropriate. You you can't keep sending people into the front over and over and over again without expecting some kind of trauma. And I think that's what was particularly uh, you know disruptive of of the Omicron variant, uh, which you know even though it wasn't necessarily as deadly because we had some more tools to deal with it, it was stressful on families and and individuals because of its contagiousness and the fact that so many people were out you know and and affected by it so um yeah no i th- i think you're absolutely right and thanks again for being with us today um so i want to shift gears a little bit because during our prep call prep for this podcast you had provided us presentation that you delivered earlier this year. And there was um, a particular topic that stood out to me that I want to be sure we make room for, um, for you to give us more detail on today. So that is um, regarding the sucker in the game. Um, can you tell us more about that? And who has employers' backs? Yeah, no, that, it, it's a it's a great question, Madeline. I mean, I've I've spent uh, one of my sort of themes in my career over the last 20 years, certainly, has been to try and get health systems more engaged with the purchasers, uh, particularly the self-insured employers. I mean, I've been an advisor and and have periodically worked on the strategic plan of the Pacific, what used to be known as the the Pacific Business Group on Health. Um uh, is now known as the Purchaser Business Group on Health. And because Pacific was always a misnomer, it was, you know, Apple, Disney, Walmart, Boeing, uh, you know, it's the large self-insured employers, the ones who are actually more sophisticated and advanced in, in um, you know, in dealing with the, uh, the health system. And, you know, they're increasingly recognizing that they are the suckers in the game, right? As I said earlier, I mean, they're the ones paying 300 to 400% of Medicare in some states, including Wisconsin, by the way, which has, you know, one of the states with the highest variance between Medicare rates and commercial rates in the country uh, for a whole bunch of reasons we could get into. But, um, you know, if you look at the RAND analysis, um, but but what what I'm hearing from my friends and the employer side is that they feel 
they're suckers in the sense that their consultants are conflicted. I'm, I'm not talking about me. Well, maybe I am too, because I've got a lot of conflicts, but, but, um, uh, you know, the people I advise them, the group I call Terrace Perrin, Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, um, they, they're, a lot of them are selling their own product. Um, and so they don't feel they're getting objective fiduciary advice necessarily. They're not happy with their health plans. I mean, you'd think this was the job of United Healthcare and Aetna and others to, uh, you know, step up and deliver a solution for those self-insured employers, but they don't, they're not terrifically thrilled by what that, what their employers are doing. They're apoplectic about PBMs and being gamed by them. And that's one of the reasons uh, PBGH in partnership with Mark Cuban uh, have started their own PBM uh, service. And they know, it's not like a big surprise to them that they're paying 300% of Medicare. They know it. They've known it for a long time. It's it's trying to do something about it. Uh, and they know they're supplying all of the margin for all of you delivering healthcare, um, if you do the math. And they are concerned and have been very concerned through the pandemic that when all this is over, they'll be the ones asked to make up the difference, right? And asked to write a bigger check going forward. So that's been their big concern over the last couple of years. And the final thing I'd say about it is they're also the people overwhelmed by these, you know, digerati, as I call them, you know, the the digital health, uh, you know, primary care front door guys who have got these shiny new solutions. Um, and they're sort of been inundated with these opportunities and trying to sort through all of that. So what I've been kind of predicting is uh, that eventually these guys will get uh, a little bit more activists going forward. Now, here's the rub. Through the last couple of years, they've been reluctant to really push as hard, I think partly because of the great retirement and the workforce shortages and the war for talent. Well, I live in Silicon Valley, Apple, not Apple, but Google, Facebook, uh, Salesforce, you, Amazon, all laying off tens of thousands of people. So I see that as a potential signal where some of these very glitzy employers may develop a little bit more backbone in terms of dealing with provider systems. And certainly my friend Elizabeth Mitchell who runs uh, PBGH now, uh, she has been a strong advocate uh, for, you know, things like uh, uh, a highly developed primary care, digital first primary care, selective narrow networks, and really uh, public policy initiatives to limit uh, hospital prices. So I would watch for that uh, going forward in terms of the, the employer's uh, who do, Madeline, believe they're suckers uh, in actually smartening up uh, going forward. And that has huge implications, given what I said earlier, for the finances of every health system in America. Um, you touched on this a little bit uh, in your example, but with these super companies, I guess you could say, the Googles and the Amazons and Disneys and such, and them... Um, being disruptors and starting to uh, take a foothold in the healthcare uh, marketplace. So, how do you how do you see that impacting traditional healthcare as some of these these new um, 
you know, means of primary care front door are starting to take hold. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think what it presents is kind of a bit of a dilemma for traditional health systems. I mean, we the, one of the mega trends I didn't discuss, uh, but but I think is evident is that we have a majority of doctors now employed, right? They're, they're, the, the, the fallacy that the way Amer- American healthcare is delivered, that there's sort of Marcus Well being in office by him or herself uh, is, is rapidly changing to one in which these physicians are part of larger systems. They are massively subsidized, which is the other point that is critical to understanding the economics of them. I mean, I talk to a lot of hospital leaders who will say they're subsidizing physicians to the tune of two or 300,000 per doctor uh, a year uh, because of the way uh, you know the game is set up. That's over and above what those physicians are are billing insurers. Because you know, if if you're a hospital based dog, you probably get seventy percent or eighty percent of the patients are Medicare or Medicaid, um, and the the yield from them is not sufficiently high. Uh, so we've got employed doctors, right? And then you've got these disruptors coming along who uh, essentially are are chasing the same front-end primary care physicians. So there's been a bit of a battle for, you know, where are we going to get the doctors from? I mean, people, uh, if you look at Walgreens, Walmart, uh, Amazon, all of them have made big investments in uh, various forms of primary care-based practices uh, in the last six months. and you know we're talking tens of billions of dollars uh, they paid for uh, these assets they've acquired. The question I think you're asking is the right one: is so what? Um, I think it presents for health systems uh, a dilemma. They either have to figure out a way to partner with those guys because people are still going to get sick. I mean, the 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 myth of the disruptors is that. If I do primary care right, no one will ever have a heart attack again, or no one will ever have bypass surgery or cancer, which is clearly, you know, not true. I mean, you can prevent certain things, but you're not going to prevent every form of tertiary and quaternary care. So I believe we've got to figure out a way for both systems to coexist. And what that means for health systems is you've got to figure out who you're going to partner with curate those partnerships, manage those partnerships, or build it yourself so that you emulate what many of these people are trying to do, which is provide uh, a level of service based off of digital contemporary technology that actually delivers uh, better care and and emulates what you ha- we all have in the rest of our life. We run everything off our phone. So if you can't arrange appointments and deal with uh, the front end off your phone, you're behind. Um, and you're certainly going to be behind these disruptors. So I think that's the conclusion. We, On the one hand, you've got to redesign your care processes. On the other, you probably have to partner with some of these folks because they're not going away. I mean, CVS, uh, United, I mean, all these guys who are making big investments, forget about the startups, uh, making big investments, uh, buying these companies, they've got the financial strength to hang in there uh, and and really deploy these assets and grow these assets more aggressively. 
So Ian, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking back, was it Michael Porter that coined the phrase coopetition? And is yeah, this coopetition 2.0? Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a good thing. Funnily enough, because I wrote this book 25 years ago called The Second Curve, and there was a book, Coopetition. I don't think it was Porter, but some other guy. But but you're right. I mean, I, I he he used that that uh, terminology of you are simultaneously competing and collaborating. And that, quite honestly, I mean, I've lived in Silicon Valley for 35 years. I mean, that's kind of how it works here. I mean, people on the one hand are trying to kill each other one day and then their partners on the, the, you know, the next day in another venture. And I think that's a good insight, Janet. That's actually kind of the punchline. You're right. That uh, I think a lot of health systems have come to, you know, it's a mixed blessing. These guys, uh, often, whether they're Walgreens on the one hand or or a local startup uh, with a with a you know good financing uh, on the other, um, th- they present both a threat and an opportunity simultaneously. On behalf of Coffee with the College, we'd like to thank our sponsors. Thanks to our premier sponsors: Epstein Ewan Architects, HGA, Hush Blackwell. And thank you as well to our preferred sponsors, C.G. Schmidt, Findorf, Paul Render, Nutanix, Plunkett Research Architects, and Quarles and Brady. We've talked a lot about costs and financial trends. I'm curious, Ian, you know, thinking from the health system perspective, rising workforce costs, rising expenses, um, it could seem you know, scary to a health system and largely at times feeling like they don't have control over the situation. What would be your one piece of advice for health systems to really focus on, um, or where have you seen positive results from your research? On on the cost side specifically? Yeah. Yeah, on the cost side and and how to combat that. Right. Well, I think that's the $64,000 question, Rachel. You're absolutely right. Um, Here's the... Here's the deal. There, there are a small, tiny, I mean, you could, I, I'd literally try to get them all together. The people who know how to break even on Medicare, um, the, there are a few health systems across the country. And the the most, my poster child is, is Benefit System in Montana, my good friend, John Goodnow, who's been doing this for about 12 years. But I've tried over the years to uh, identify statistically who these folk are and and uh, and bring them together. Unfortunately, that process got interrupted a little bit by COVID, but, but they're few and far between. Let me just put it that way. And the ones who are able to do that um, have a hallmark of uh, a history uh, of 25 years, uh, in some cases, but at least a decade of passionate focus on cost containment uh, and cost efficiency in their health systems. And so they've made it a goal to break even on Medicare. Not that they don't play the game of commercial cost shifting, they do, but many of them have 80% Medicare and Medicaid patients and are really disciplined to make the math work. And and so there are, it it can be done is, is the point. And what they tend not to do is get distracted by shiny objects or the idea of the month or listening to futurists like me and basically ignoring all of that stuff uh, and and sort of sticking to the knitting. So that that's one solution set. The, the second solution set, which 
you know, I was just with a meeting, moderating a meeting with 150 CEOs uh, from all over the country, large and small systems. And I was incredibly impressed that there are important innovations people are going after to deal with these core problems. And we'll maybe get into that in a bit more detail in the following podcast on workforce, because that's really where the financial woes are coming from. I mean, it's basically labor costs up 20, 10 to 20%, as I said, pre-pandemic, over pre-pandemic. Um, you know, in a 4% margin business, you can't deal with that. That, that's, that means you're losing money. Uh, and that's the situation we're in right now uh, for many of them. Um, but what, what that also necessitates is what I would call care redesign and throughput redesign. Because, uh, you know, I think a lot of health systems, it's not that they're short of patients, right? I mean, I, I'd ask you all. I mean, I, I guarantee your institutions uh, are full right now. Uh, some of you full to overflowing, right? And and yet uh, the finances have not fully recovered, which seems counterintuitive in a business that is still largely fee for service, right? Is fee for volume rather than fee for value. Um, so why would you be losing money? And the short answer is because the costs of producing that care have gone up uh, more than the revenues uh, you're deriving. I mean, it's like, as Buffy the Vampire Slayer said, what part of da do you not get, right? Um, so it, it's sort of not surprising that people are, are struggling. Not, not everybody's struggling. Um, and that's a, a hallmark, that there are leaders out there who are working on throughput, who are working on creative workforce solutions, who are deploying uh, disciplined uh, technology innovation, whether it be AI or virtual acute care, or we could get into specific examples. But I mean, it, it's, it's what you shouldn't do is just throw up your hands and go, you know, society is to blame. I can't do anything about it. I think you can. Um, the other thing I'd say on the positive side is some of these things are permanent. Uh, I, I think the great retirement is permanent. You know, the baby boomers, uh, many of them laughed. Uh, you know, because we're all getting older. I mean, you, you're all young and beautiful, but I'm I'm 70 years old. You know, I mean, so the 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 baby boomers who lost all their money, half of them lost all their money in the 2008 recession, hung in there. This recession, when the market was up uh, and dealt with COVID, a lot of them just left. Uh, and and we can talk about the numbers in in the workforce uh, podcast in a bit late bit later. But but yeah. I think there is hope. Uh, you've got to manage your way out of it. Cost discipline is going to be key. Care redesign is going to be key. Managing throughput so you're not leaving money on the table in terms of, you know, a six-month wait for a neurology appointment, which is the norm in most American cities now. Um, then, you know, if we if we fix some of this stuff. Uh, and we manage our way through it. I'll see. I think you'll see, and we are seeing an amelioration in the financial performance. But it's not going to be easy, and it's hard work. It really is hard work. Thanks, Ian, for diving into that response around um, rising costs and looking forward to touching on the workforce aspects of that coming up in our next podcast. You know, you've been in this business a long time. And I'm really curious, 
to hear from you. You know, as you reflect on your own research, what's not surprising to you? Anything that you didn't see coming or any potential blind spots for healthcare delivery systems, things they should pay attention to? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, it's funny, people often ask, you know, well, what's your batting average as a futurist? And that, that's actually a pretty good metaphor, right? You know, I mean, if you got, you got it right a third of the time, you'd be in the Hall of Fame. So, um, and, and, you know, our batting average, I, I think, it, the, has been reasonably decent in terms of uh, megatrends. And part of that is there are certain things you can predict not with certainty, but demographic shifts, for example. You know, if you know the number of 20-year-olds today, you know the number of 30-year-olds 10 years from now, roughly speaking, right? You know, and so those kind of demographic uh, uh, forecastable elements. And that's why I have some high confidence in saying things like public programs are going to grow because if you look at the trends, you know, we have an older society. We finally are seeing the aging of the baby boom you know, where by 2030, every baby boomer will be in Medicare. Um, that that has actually happened. And and by the same token, uh, a, a modern post-industrial economy is good at producing rich people and poor people, not a lot of people in the middle, uh, which means that public programs like Medicaid are likely to grow over time. Um, but you're asking the right question. So what surprised me? Well, I think the one curveball that you can often get is from technology. And and um, now I'm not a technological determinist. I've spent a good part of my career railing against technology doesn't determine things, but it does amplify things. And it does cause things to change at a different rate, um, uh, you know, through its amplification, sort of so-called exponential technologies. So think about two areas. One is, and and it's you know, in the last few days, Gordon Moore died, uh, the one of the founders of of Intel, and he was famous in Silicon Valley and elsewhere for Moore's law, which basically he predicted that the number of circuits per chip would double every eighteen months. Which actually, if you talk to people in the Valley that are serious technology nerds, I mean. Not only was that a prediction, it became a goal for a lot of people working at Intel and Apple and other places. So um, it, it, it was a kind of a marker in the sand. So those, um, so what, you might say. Well, the so what is, if you keep doubling in capacity, the power of these tools just gets unbelievably large over a relatively short period of time. So if you're in the decades-long business of forecasting, that's something you can take to the bank, right? And that's why I think there's so much buzz in the health business now about ChatGPT and its derivatives. ChatGPT is the fastest deployment and diffusion of a technology uh, in the history of technology. I mean, it's like twice as fast as, you know, Instagram uh, or or other social media uh, deployed. Um, And there are potentially large number of use cases in healthcare. We're already seeing it. I mean, now I don't, I'm not of the school that says AI is going to replace all doctors. I, I, uh, my cheesy metaphor is that 
that AI is going to be hamburger helper for physicians. You know, it's going to make a scarce resource go further. And so yeah, it just shows you how old I am. You know, people go, what's hamburger helper? They've never heard of it. Anyway, it was a big deal in the 70s when I came to America. Um, but I do believe that's the right metaphor. It's it's going to be a tool that if we use it right, will you know, is actually a very positive thing for the health system. Now, by the same token, we're making the same kind of exponential leap in science. And I'm no scientist, as I said, but you know, my friends over at Stanford, I, I'm aware of just the unbelievable insights on basic human biology being translated into insights of clinical care, right? And we, there's, here's the metric. There's over a million articles every year published in science and medicine uh, related to medical care. And that will yield clinical innovation. And we in America are not going to say no to it. Uh, so we're going to have new drugs. We're going to have new technologies. We're going to have new devices. It's going to improve care and it'll be continuously innovating. And, um, you know, we will, we as a society will demand access to it. Now, paying the bill for it, is problematic because often these technologies are more expensive, not less. Uh, but I think the combination of those technological changes are the ones that will end up surprising us the most um, and and cause us to concern. And the other one I've touched on at, at length is is I think what might blindside employers or sorry, my blindside health systems is inadequate attention to just assuming employers and private insurance will continue to pay the bill. And I think that's that's a, a wrong assumption for the long run. Thanks for those insights, Ian. And um, as we were prepping for this podcast before we hit the record button today, uh, we predicted we could talk to you for four hours on these topics, <laughs> and um, we'd still probably want to learn more from your insights. But we want to keep it a manageable podcast link, so we're going to wrap things up and, and look forward to another podcast with you on Workforce. So as I do that, I'm going to share just a few of the things I jotted down as some key items from our discussion today. Um, I think based on all of the elements that Ian talked about, and I'll name just a few of them, um, the potential for employer activism in the future due to the rising cost of healthcare and the impacts that that has on their companies, um, the rising labor costs within healthcare that healthcare systems are having to absorb, the disruptors that are entering the healthcare markets that create competition, all of those things still directionally, as Ian said, point to the same need. And that is for all of us to stick to the knitting in terms of cost containment. Because if we don't do that, we have the potential to be even more buffeted by those and other dynamics and waves that will be hitting us. Um, also need to think about care redesign and as Ian noted, managing throughput. I could pull a lot of other themes from what Ian talked about, but those are three practical, tactical things um, that we can do to control more of our destiny than less in what could be a very uncertain future. So before I wrap up, Ian, because we will be having another podcast with you, any other final words of wisdom you'd like to 
to close our top 10 trends podcast with. Yeah, Jenna, I thought your summary was terrific and well done. Um, I would just add one thing, which is that um, I do believe that the role of mission and values in healthcare matters still, right? Um, most of us got into this business because we were trying to do something positive for society. Um, I know that a lot of my work revolves around the money and the financial hydraulics, but um, I, I, I can only tell you that people who do this work uh, are in it for the right reasons. And I think that's true all the way from frontline staff to leaders of organizations. So uh, I think that's actually uh, the positive spin on this. If we remember what brought us to the business uh, and brought us to the mission of healthcare, um, we'll, we'll do fine because uh, we're doing it for the right reasons, right? Uh, trying to help our fellow uh, members of society and our communities. And, and I see that uh, everywhere I go with, with leaders and with frontline folk. Uh, so that's encouraging. And I think that's the overlay on all of this uh, on the positive side. Ian, I can't think of a better way to end this first podcast with you. And thank you for that um, beautiful closing and reminder to all of us that are up to our eyeballs every day. So really appreciate it. I hope you, our listeners, have enjoyed this podcast discussion, Coffee with Ian and that you'll join us for our next opportunity to talk to Ian in a podcast where we'll focus on workforce issues, but also workforce opportunities. This podcast is copyrighted material of the American College of Healthcare Executives, Wisconsin Chapter 2023.